First Peter chapter 4 today. If you take your Bibles and join me there, First Peter chapter number 4. While you're turning, let me ask you a question. Have you ever received or do you have in mind one of those strange gifts of Christmas? How many of you have ever gotten a gift before that was nicely wrapped and, and wonderfully presented and maybe even the, the person who had, had prepared and gotten the gift for you is, is handing you the gift and they're looking at you with some anticipation and uh, you say, do you want me to open it now? And they say, yes, yes, please. And have you ever had that awkward moment when you opened the gift and, and it was not necessarily one of those things that you were hoping for under the tree? Sometimes we have these strange gifts, so to speak, of Christmas. It's not the thing that you asked for. It is not the thing that you had been hoping for. In fact, you might even wonder if it is, in fact, a gift at all. When we start to consider what it is that we share in common with the called out assembly, that being the church, we understand that there are a lot of wonderful things that we do share. We mentioned earlier that we have this love one to another. There's something that is beyond words that is provided for us as part of the family of God. That there are so many wonderful benefits. In fact, when we start to think about Jesus and what he does for us and what he came to provide, the gift of God, eternal life unparalleled, unprecedented. But when we also think about Jesus, this gift, and even the season that we're in right now, we, we call it the season of joy. We sing songs, joy to the world, the Lord is come. But when we think about his arrival, his arrival and, and then his life, his 33 years of life here on this earth, we're marked by anything than, than that which we might refer to as joy. From the time of his birth, he's born in a, in a stable, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Some even consider them to be bandages, a picture of that which is to come. Very early on, just as an infant, there is one who is seeking his life and to do so takes the life of, of hundreds and even thousands of infants in an attempt to squash the life of this newborn king. He's raised in, in uh, humble beginnings with Nazareth being his home. Many would say, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? From the time his official ministry begins, he is an outcast to the religious insiders. In fact, they continually pursue him to cause him in some way, shape or form to stumble because he has disrupted their normality. Again, early on in his ministry, his own family questions the veracity of his call and his position. In his death, of course, he's humbled beyond what we can even fathom. He's spat upon, he is rejected, he is shamed in ways that are embarrassing even for us to mention in public. And yet he's, he's publicly crucified on a wooden cross. Are any of these those things that we might look at and say, what a gift that I would love to share with my Savior? 
We have been in a a mini-series that we will conclude today. We've called it Assembly Required, Understanding the Fellowship of the Saints. In the first week, we looked at the fellowship of the gospel. This is really where the church begins. We talked about the communion of the saints. This is what a church does. We address the unity of the spirit. This is the church's power. And today, we will address the sharing of the suffering of our Savior. This is what we now will share in common with Jesus. The Apostle Peter was a personal witness to the suffering of Christ. In fact, your Bibles are open to 1 Peter chapter 4, but look at the first verse of chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, the elders which are among you, I exhort, Peter says, who am also an elder, and then he adds this, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, I saw Christ's suffering with my own eyes. Yet as this chapter opens with the suffering of Christ, it's going to move into something far more personal to us. We understand what Christ came to accomplish and that this would of necessity involve suffering. Yet notice what we find in our text today, 1 Peter chapter 4. Look with me, if you will, at verses 12 and 13. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. That word partakers, when we, when we talk about the requirements of the assembly, assembly required, what are those things that are of necessity requirements for this assembly that comes together? Those things that we will now share in common. Well, before we see our fellowship with Christ in suffering, let's notice our shared suffering with the saints and then some of the similarities of our suffering. So today we will begin with sharing the suffering of the saints. As we do so, look again at the first line of our text today. That is 1 Peter chapter 4. Look down at verse number 12 and notice how he begins. Here the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, note those words, which is to try you. Now, there is something that's, that's really beautiful that we're reminded of, and certainly there are no lost or unimportant words in Scripture. When he starts this passage, and, and he knows what he's about to address, he starts it with a term that is endearing. It is a special term. He says, beloved, beloved. Now, if you are in suffering right now, if you are in the fiery trial, there is something that we are to be reminded of up front, and he, and he gets the word in early. He's about to address some things that are going to be deeply personal to the, 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 the recipients of this epistle, this letter. In other words, when they read these words, it's going to conjure up all kinds of ideas they will immediately associate with what he's writing. And maybe when we even begin to say, beloved, 
Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. There are those in this auditorium, there are those who are watching who immediately start to think, ooh, fiery trial. Man, I'm in the midst of something that is a burning trial. It is hot suffering right now. But he wants us to remember there is an important word that frames all of what he is about to say. And he says, beloved, beloved. It is the title that God the Father uses of God the Son. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Same word, same expression, my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased who came to suffer on behalf of those who could not. He came to do what you and I were incapable of doing, suffering to a degree that no man has ever fully suffered. And he starts out this official ministry with this is my, make no doubt about it, no matter what's about to come, no matter how his life's been marked by suffering and no matter the suffering that lay before him, this is my beloved son. Do you know if you didn't know early on in Christ's ministry, you might think that God the Father has something against God the Son. And if you and I aren't careful, we oftentimes begin to think, well, what has God got against me? Why am I facing the challenges, challenges that I am facing right now? And he begins it with this beautiful word, beloved. It's not a word that you use casually. How many of you actually remember the time, if you, are, if you are in love right now. Well, let me just ask the question, how many of you are in love right now? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you are in love but the other person doesn't know it yet? There's a few right there. Okay, so, so sometimes you're in love but the other person doesn't know it, but you know you are and you're waiting for the right time to use those terms of endearment, those words that communicate love. In fact, some of you that have already expressed your, your feelings and you've told your spouse, you've told other people, your, your fiance, your, your special someone, you've used the expression, I love you. But you probably did it in, in I don't know, you did it in a measured way. Like you, you might have, now I know we don't write as many notes today, but notes matter. Uh, my, my aunt just passed recently and I was at her funeral and, and my uncle found the letters that she wrote to him. While he was in, in the military serving, she wrote him this stack of letters, handwritten of course. And, and, and you know, one of the things you notice if you save letters from a person that has eventually become your spouse, you've probably seen you, you, you increasingly communicate feelings. Like sometimes you sign it yours. Um, now, if it's just your friend, that's nice, you know, but it doesn't say a whole lot, all right? And uh, if you signed it yours and then you go back to your friend, things are not heading in the right direction, okay? But we say these kinds of expressions and, and yours and, and then yours truly and, and then um, love, love. And then an even more direct statement, I love you. When you start to use phraseology terms, they matter because they communicate some heartfelt expression. 
Don't miss the fact, there's a lot to cover here, but don't miss the fact that he begins all that we're about to say. He, he puts it underneath the umbrella of beloved. And if you're here today and you feel anything but the love of God, back up just a little bit and understand what is it that God said of Jesus before he endures all the suffering that mankind could throw at him. He begins with, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We begin by understanding that suffering does not come because of a lack of love, but within the framework of his love. And when we start to understand our suffering in those terms, it takes on new and more significant meaning. And what kind of suffering are we talking about? Again, he uses this expression, beloved, think it not strange concerning the, and here are those words again, fiery trial, which is to try you. The Greek word used here is, it's, it's an interesting word. In fact, as soon as I say the word, we start to think, oh, I, I know exactly what we're talking about. Pyrosis, pyrosis. We would say um, uh, pyrotechnics. Um, sometimes we would say a pyromaniac, this idea of a person who's fascinated with fire. He says the, the pyrosis, the fiery trial, which is to try you. And this is something that every member of the body of Christ shares to one degree or another with the rest of the assembled body. It's something that every church, every member of the body in particular will face. And when one member faces it, it is something that becomes the trial of us all. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Throughout all the ages, the enemies of God's people have sought to silence us, followers of Christ, even eradicate us and certainly blame us for all the evils of the world. And the resulting consequence is much suffering for the people of God. During the time in which the apostle Peter was writing, the church would certainly understand and identify with the words fiery trial. We believe that the, the passage, the epistle that the apostle Peter is writing was written around the time of AD 64. If you're a historian and, and you start to think back to what else was taking place in the world that's significant around that time, well, many of you might conclude Rome was burning. Rome is burning. Now, many people believe that Nero, the Caesar, is the one who was behind the burning of Rome. And there's some, some strong evidence to support the same. But now when public opinion begins to turn their attention on Nero, Nero turns his attention to the Christians. Nero says that they're the problem. They're the ones who, who have burned Rome. And now he tries to turn public opinion against the Christians. Church historian Andrew Miller gives the following account of the fiery trial that was raging even as Peter wrote. This was the first legal persecution of the Christians and in some of its features it stands alone in the annals of human barbarity. Inventive cruelty sought out new ways to torture, to sa of torture to satiate the bloodthirsty Nero, the most cruel emperor that ever reigned. The gentle, peaceful, unoffending followers of the Lord Jesus were sown in the skins of wild beasts and torn by dogs. 
Others were wrapped in a kind of dress smeared with wax, with pitch and other combustible matter with a stake under the chin to keep them upright and set on fire when the day closed that they might serve as lights in the public gardens of popular amusements. Nero lent his own gardens for these exhibitions and gave entertainments for the people. But fearful as their death was, it was soon over. And to the Christians, no doubt, the happiest moment of their existence. Long, long before the lights were quenched in Nero's garden, the martyrs had found their home of rest above. In the blooming garden of God's eternal delights, this precious truth we learn from what the Savior said to the penitent thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. We're reminded in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It may not be the gift that we were looking for under the tree, but it is one of those things that we begin to share with all the saints throughout all the ages. I would ask even today, you may not identify with the persecutions of Nero, but you say, I feel as if I am suffering. Have you lost a child? Someone understands, someone who has shared your suffering. Do you have cancer? There are others who even at this moment are sharing in your suffering. Has your spouse deserted you? Have you been hurt by a friend? Have you been falsely accused? Has your child abandoned the faith? And on and on we could go. All of this and so much more remains the suffering of the saints. And we, as the called out assembly, share in the suffering of the saints. The Apostle Peter begins here. He helps us understand these are the fiery trials that will try you just as they have all the saints for all the ages. But we go on and we even understand there is some of the sharing the similarities of suffering. That there is nothing new, so to speak, under the sun. There is something that we begin to share with all people from all places, from all times, that is this thread uniting our suffering together with the saints. Throughout all the ages, there is always something that we share in common, and it is suffering. Again, in our text, 1 Peter 4, 12, beloved, think it, now notice these words again, not strange, Concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. The words, the first use of the words, not strange. It's a different word than the second strange thing that has happened unto you. The, the first, not strange, and then the second are quite intriguing. Here's how the words used elsewhere, the first use of the word. Think it not strange. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse number two, the Bible says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers for thereby some have, here's the word, entertained angels unawares. Think it not strange. He puts the negative on entertained. Now he goes on, uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 23, then called he them in and lodged them. Same word, think it not strange. He lodged them. The word stranger means to be hospitable to. It means to welcome as a guest. The, the second use of, of the strange thing is a phrase that is not the same word. It's used here as a foreigner, as a stranger. Here's what I think he's saying. When the fiery trial comes your way, remember 
This is your guest, not some foreigner, some alien that shouldn't be admitted to your home. Open the doors wide and welcome him in. To anticipate difficulties is helpful. While we may not know all that God is doing, we can rest assured that he is doing something and it is good. So he says, think it not strange. Don't think that this is something that you should not welcome into your home. Don't open the door and be shocked and try to slam the door quickly before he can put his foot to block the way. Think it not strange. Concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Like, what in the world is happening? He says, no, 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 I'm giving you four, some forethought on this. You can anticipate some things. There's going to be a knock at your door. And if you're not careful, you're going to try to slam that door shut. And he says, no, 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 be hospitable too. This is something that has happened to people of all places, all ages, all times. And there is something that is good in store for you. It takes us back to the book of James when he wrote in James 1-2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. Count it all joy. It's the idea of welcome like an old friend. Hey, it's been a long time since I've seen you. Hey, come on in, have a seat. Count it all joy, all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, that is various trials. He goes on, he says, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That is the ability to stand. He's helping us to understand some things about that which is to come. It's as if he's looking at suffering and rather than despising it, running from it, he is actually elevating suffering to a place of special honor like you would an old friend. Now, just to be clear, Peter is not giving special honor to the suffering we bring on ourselves. So I think that's an important designation. Sometimes we, we are the, the makers of our own suffering and it is oftentimes as a result of our own sin. So what Peter's not saying is, hey, listen, you got yourself into trouble. Um, it may feel like an old friend, but this is not the, the thing that gets special honor. You did this and this and this, and now you're suffering as a result. This is the suffering of our consequence, the suffering of a, the hand of a loving father who chastens his own to bring them back to him. This is not the same kind of suffering. In fact, I find this very interesting. If, if we backed up just a little bit, look at verse number 14 in your text that says this, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, if you're suffering for the name of Christ, happy are ye, that's good. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as. Now, please take note of this. I, I find this almost humorous. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer. Now notice who he groups in this, this little mixing of murderers, thieves, evildoers, and then busybodies. Busybodies. Now, this, he even explains it. Or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if he suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God on this behalf. He inserts here a little parenthetical statement. He says, okay, listen, you may be suffering 
um, um, for doing right. He says, happy are ye. But if you are suffering as a murderer, shame on you. As a thief, that should not once be named among us. As an evildoer, I, I can't believe that this would be typical of the church. And then he even throws in, and some of you are just sticking your nose into other people's business. And he says, cut it out. Do you know in this day in which we live, we could use a little dose of the Apostle Peter saying, stop sticking your nose into other people's business. It's just a timely passage. And if we don't mention it here, we we miss something. We should suffer for stirring up trouble where there is no trouble to be stirred. You know, the Bible even helps us understand that there's something honorable about passing over another person's sin. Not that the sin is not accountable for, but that we're not trying to make this a big public spectacle. And sometimes in a world filled with with the ability to broadcast our thoughts in ways that that go far and wide, there are people who are busybodies in other people's business. And he, he mentions them with murderers, with thieves, and with evildoers. And he says, listen, you're gonna bring trouble on yourself. And he says, that, sh- that shouldn't be named among you. So what is he doing? He's talking about the, the, the sufferings. If we're suffering for being a Christian, happy are ye. Notice where he takes us next. We've seen the, the sharing, the suffering of the saints. We see the similarities of our suffering, fiery trials. We've experienced those throughout all the ages of Christians and we continue to experience them today. But now he concludes our, our thinking in this text with what we'll refer to as the sharing, the suffering of our Savior. Look down at verse number 13, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Partakers of Christ's suffering. The word partaker, it, it is a word that is again rich with meaning, but we understand it like I'm a partaker, I'm a sharer. I'm a joint participant. I'm an associate with the same. How many of you ever had a, um, how many of you ever had a tree house when you were a kid? How many of you had a tree house? Several of you, lots of you did. How about a clubhouse? How many of you had a clubhouse? How many of you ever had something where you had to have a special password to get in? Did you have that? Okay, that's kind of cool. Like um, you have to say the secret code word before you can come in. And if you don't, you're going to get, yeah, I don't know, you know, shot out with the slingshot. Whatever, don't do that, but that might be what happens, you know. You have to know something to access the club. When I was a kid, we, we built tree houses, we had forts, clubhouses, and I don't know, it probably only would last for a day, but we'd have a, a little word that you had to use to be part of the club, to get access to. And if you didn't have it, you were, you were on the outside. And that usually meant your little brothers and sister, you know, they, they don't get to come into your clubhouse. There is something that is shared with Christ and, and it is a special place. I don't mean to belittle it by saying, the clubhouse, but it is a sacred place of shared fellowship with Jesus. And quite honestly, there is, there's only one way into that intimate place of fellowship. 
You don't, get, you don't get to come just because you say, I, I want to come fellowship with Jesus. There are lots of ways to just come and fellowship. He invites us. We, we come and we dine. We sit down. We, we, we sup with him. There, there is this shared fellowship. It's wonderful, but it's not this in particular. This is a means of enjoying intimacy with Jesus Christ and and there is only one path into this shared fellowship. It is the, the pathway of shared suffering. You come into this secret place through no other means. Suffering does invite us into a very special place of fellowship with our Savior. If we're not careful, we may assume that the fellowship of his suffering that is being referenced here is only that of a physical nature. Let me say it is not. I believe that the fellowship of his suffering is not only physical, but more often than not, it is emotional or spiritual in nature. Consider for a few moments, how did Jesus suffer? You know, first of all, this is a hard thing to suffer. And many in here have understood this. Maybe some even right now are, are feeling this. Jesus suffered under the weight of suspicion from those who should have known better. He suffers under the weight of suspicion from those who should have known better. You think through this, Lazarus was sick. Here's one example. He and his sisters, they're friends of Jesus. John eleven three. 3, therefore his sisters sent unto him saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Well, he has word of the, the, the illness of Lazarus, but four days pass and no Jesus. Now, here's my assumption. I, I don't think I'm reading deeply into this. They sent word to Jesus because they'd watched him heal the sick. They'd seen him give eyes, sight to the blind eyes. They knew Jesus can do what Lazarus needs. And so they send word to Jesus. They get word and Jesus delays and he doesn't come and he doesn't come and he doesn't come. Even his own disciples are starting to wonder. Like, Jesus, aren't we going to go? Aren't we going to go back? Aren't we heading back? And Jesus delays, he pauses, he hesitates. Now, finally, when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. Now notice the the subtle hurts. We do this at times. We don't want to come right out and say what we're feeling, but we'll give some little subtle jab, some little statement that lets people know there's far more to my feelings than I have actually put fully into words. John 11, verse number three, therefore his sisters said unto him, Lord, be him who thou lovest is sick, I know. John eleven twenty 20 and 21. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto the Lord, unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. L- Lord, There may be, now again, this I am reading into this. There may be some statement that that is being made that Mary doesn't even go out to greet him. Well, he he didn't come to me. I'm not going to him. She's going to make some statements as well. Martha, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would still be alive. 
She doesn't say anything else that's recorded here. Even when Jesus speaks of his resurrection and power, notice how this abrupt response, Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I I can't know inflection, but it's as if she's saying, well, yeah, I know that, but he's dead now. And, and it still stands, if you'd have been here, my brother had not died. Then we see how Martha's sister Mary responds. Verse 32, then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The same charge that Martha lays at his feet is that which Mary does the same. If you had come like you could have come, my brother would still be here. They're ascribing some suspicion. They're thinking some ill of Jesus. If, clearly you could have, what was more important to you than us at that time? How many times do I have to ask? How often do I have to plead? What more do I have to say until you will work? Is God's timing anything less than impeccable? And yet they're questioning the timing of God. How does Jesus love his own? He does so with a perfect love. Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Let me ask you this question today. Are you willing to enter into the fellowship of this suffering? The fellowship of this suffering. Say, well, well, I don't want people to view me with suspicion. I want everybody to know I have good motives. I have good intentions. Can you always communicate that? And let me ask this further. Should you always communicate that? Should a parent always explain everything to a child? How many of you, many in here, even as adult children, young adults, how many of you always, even at this age and stage, always fully understand the intents of a loving parent? You say, I know they love me, but why are they doing this? We know that as young children, we can't fully understand. I would submit, parents, you don't have to fully explain. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. If God the Father doesn't always explain, maybe we're setting a poor pattern for, for, for the Father in an earthly fashion or an earthly mother to fully explain. Some suspicion. Are we willing to enter into the fellowship of that suffering? He goes on, we start to understand even further the the fellowship of his suffering. He suffered under the weight of sin. He suffers under the weight of sin for the wages of sin is death. Yes, the high cost of sin can be paid for only with a perfect sacrifice. That's what Jesus came obviously to pay. 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19, back in the, the epistle we're looking at, For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. To enter into this fellowship of his suffering means in part, now we can't pay the sacrifice that Jesus paid, that was his alone. But are Christians ever called to suffer underneath the weight of another's sin? We get it when we have to pay for ours. Like, okay, I did wrong and there's some consequences. I understand that. But what about the weight of another's sin? To fellowship with Christ in this regard, to enter into this fellowship of his suffering, it means that we begin to understand the weight of sin under which he suffered. And remember, this was the weight of the sin of others. Question, are we willing to suffer because of the sin of others? to enter into the fellowship of his suffering. Like they did wrong. I was mistreated. Someone said something about me that was not accurate. That was not true. They're not gonna do that to me. Aren't we grateful, eternally grateful that Christ was willing to suffer under the weight of another, the fellowship of his suffering? He suffered under the weight of suspicion, under the weight of sin. He suffered under the weight of separation. Matthew 27, verse 46, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Certainly that which Christ suffered under the greatest extent was the separation that occurred between Christ and the Godhead, the Father. In this brief series, we've addressed the topic of fellowship, the assembly. What is it that brought the greatest grief to our Savior? I believe it was the suffering of separation. You you could say the suffering of broken fellowship. Does it grieve your heart when fellowship is broken? Have you ever entered into the fellowship of his suffering because your heart is broken over the separation of believers because of sin? May we never be the cause of a rift within the body of Christ. It should be noted that of all the suffering of Christ, all of it was undeserved. I have suffered from that which I brought on myself. But to enter into the fellowship of his suffering I must be willing to suffer for that which I do not deserve, but I'm willing to endure. Even at times, the suffering of separation because of the sin of others. To do this, we have to make room for the wrongs of others as we partake in the fellowship of his suffering. Are you seeking to wrong every injustice done to you? Every sin that's taken place? to make sure every every wrong is righted, every affront, every little slight, they're not going to. You know, I find it interesting that in Romans, the apostle Paul helps us understand Romans 12, 19, dearly beloved, there's our word again. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather, and I love this little expression, but rather give place unto wrath. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, make room for injustices in your life. Do you know if you have no room for a wrong done to you, then your only option is I have to make this right. But if you can absorb like, oh, no, I have a place for this. Make room, give place unto wrath. Why? Well, because God's gonna make it right. 
Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God says, I've got you taken care of. I'm going to right the wrong. How is it that we share in his suffering? At times, we suffer under the weight of separation. Would you be willing today to take a significant step of faith by telling the Lord that you desire to enter at his choosing the fellowship even of his suffering? Now, let me state this plainly. Nobody simply chooses suffering. Nobody. Nobody should. It's not that we say, hey, sign me up for suffering. I volunteer. It is I sign up for you and intimacy, fellowship. And Lord, should suffering come knocking at my door, I will not slam it shut and say, you are not welcome here. Lord, at your choosing, should difficulty, challenge, even suffering knock on my door, I will not think it inhospitable. Lord, I welcome it like I would an old friend. I see that there is a place for this in my life because it brings me into a special place with you. A place of shared intimacy through the doorway of suffering. Who here has felt the suffering of suspicion? Are you willing to suffer the questioning even of your character for the advancement of the cause of Christ? Are you entering into the fellowship of his suffering because of the grief of sin? Does sin, both yours and that of those about you, cause pain of soul? Have you entered into the fellowship of his suffering by knowing the pain that separation causes? And are you willing to suffer a wrong for the sake of protecting the unity of the body? Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's fellowship, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. When you think about it, suffering may be one of the most special gifts we will ever unwrap under the tree.